Welcome, everyone, to Square One, a podcast series run by the Harvard Association for Law and Business, one of the largest student-run organizations at Harvard Law School. My name is Ramin Sheth, and I'm a current member of the advisory board for the Harvard Association for Law and Business. Today, we're excited to be joined by Andrew Yang, founder and CEO of Venture for America, a national fellowship program for enterprising recent college graduates to launch their careers as entrepreneurs focusing on underserved American cities. Andrew has accomplished a lot with VFA since founding it in the last six years and has been a tireless advocate for entrepreneurship, appearing on CNN, CNBC, Time, TechCrunch, and The Wall Street Journal, amongst others, to discuss the subject. Andrew, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Andrew, maybe it would be helpful to take a step back and, and talk about your journey prior to VFA. You know, you graduated from Columbia Law and went on to a familiar career path working in corporate law at Davis Polk in New York City. And after a very short time at Davis Polk, you left for a life in startups. And at first, you certainly faced adversity. You know, before moving on to the success story that was Manhattan GMAT, talk a bit more about the thought process that led you to leave the law and an established prestigious institution and what you learned as you went through a challenging and tumultuous early journey in startups. Sure. So, um... Uh, I was 25 and working at Davis Polk um, and uh, looked around and didn't see anyone that seemed that happy or psyched to be there. Um, I mean, Davis Polk, you know, had, had a better atmosphere and reputation than, than many of the, its peer institutions. But I, I was pretty confident that um, I was in the wrong place. Uh, and the, the big equation for me or the, the, the relationship was that I did not think it was going to get any easier to leave. I thought it was just going to get harder. So if you have those two things as givens, one, you're not going to be here forever, and two, it's just going to get harder to leave rather than easier, then um, you realize that you should leave immediately. (laughs) (laughs) And and so so that was the five-month mark for me. I started in September after law school and uh, went home for Thanksgiving and said to my parents, my Asian parents, and uh, that... I did not think that this was what they'd raised me to do. Uh, they disagreed, of course. They thought that <laughs> it was a great job. <laughs> um, so, so what I did was I took a week off, and I said, I'm going to work on this business idea I have for a week. And if I make what feels like progress, then I will quit. Um, and that week was very exciting, um, and it felt like I was getting somewhere. So then I went back to the firm and, and quit at the five-month mark. So talk a little bit more about that, right? So you... You know, you, you quit Davis Polk after five months. Um, you have a good week thinking through a business plan idea. Uh, was it entrepreneurship? Was it as smooth sailing just from that moment on? You kind of you knew you had the plan. You um, It was smooth sailing and everything was easy from there? Well, you know, anyone who started a business knows uh, and knows that it's rough. Um, so, I, you know, to, to make it concrete, I was 25. I had saved about $10,000, um, but I uh, owed $110,000 law school loans. And I wasn't sure if Davis Polk was going to have me give back some of like the money they'd, get, they'd given me to like move and like, you know some sort of like uh, hiring bonus type stuff. And they did ask for it back, so then that was um, half the 10000 gone. <laughs> so uh, my burn rate at the time was maybe um, a few thousand a month. And so I had maybe um, two months of money, which quickly ran out, and then just went to credit cards and ended up like negative um, six or seven thousand, if I remember right. Uh, so during that time, I had a PowerPoint deck and was trying to raise money. Um, and anyone who's tried to raise money knows 
that um, people will always say the same thing to you, which is, this is very interesting, let me think about it and get back to you. They do not say yes, they do not say no. Um, so I hadn't raised any money after six months. I uh, just, you know, went through my savings, uh, felt more and more uh, anxious and uh, like I was, you know, messing up. Uh, and then an investor came through with a $25,000 check and then another one came through with a $30,000 check and we pretty quickly raised a couple hundred thousand after the first check. One of the things that I'd realized is that people need to be led. So if there's someone else that believes and other people say, well, that person believes, uh, it must be a good idea. Um, so as soon as the dam broke and we got a little bit of momentum, um, so we cobbled together this website and had this press launch in 2000, um, just when the air was coming out of the internet bubble. Um, I was on CNN with Darius Rucker to promote our new .com. It's called stargiving.com. And then uh, the bubble burst entirely. The NASDAQ went from 5,000 to 1,900. And our investors then were batting down the hatches uh, and really asking us if we had any money left they could get back, if anything. Like, no one had any, any interest in our little business um, from, from 2000 to 2001. So, you know, I'm like 26, 27. Um, I just have a failed startup. I lose investors a couple hundred thousand dollars. I still owe a hundred thousand in law school debt. Uh, I called that debt my mistress because I felt like I was supporting a family in another state. <laughs> um, and, and it was 2002, and the economy was terrible. Um, no one was hiring. Um, so I was just doing whatever I had to to get by, um, you know, so I could give you, like, the elegant version. It's like I went to work at a mobile software startup as an executive. Um, the, the true story was, like, I, you know, a friend referred me to some job. They, like, needed some legal work. Uh, I, you know, I was uh, um, teaching the GMAT on the side with a friend's company, which ended up morphing into a very important part of my life. Um, but those were a lean couple of years, uh, and... Um, my confidence had been badly shaken. My, my parents still told people I was a lawyer, even though I hadn't been a lawyer uh, in a couple of years. <laughs> so, so things like that were going on. I just want to try and, um, you know, demystify some of the stuff because you can make it seem like a magic trick. You can be like, oh, you know, this didn't work out, but then I, I did this and it was successful and now I'm shiny and wear suits. No, and um, I think that's... I think that's... Wear suits the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, and I think that's really important, right? Because I think a lot of actually what you see as entrepreneurship has been a little bit glorified in society today is it's a lot easier to talk about failure when you've succeeded, right? And so I think a lot of the stories that are actually untold um, are the ones in which, you know, there there's a lot of grit involved and it doesn't necessarily work out. And even the folks that have succeeded, oftentimes the the grit and the times at which it didn't work out, the kind of the underpinnings of what you're talking about, having confidence shaken or not actually knowing if it might work out are often kind of swept under the rug. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And that's one reason why I, I always try to emphasize just how real and gritty uh, and unpleasant certain things were uh, in real time. Yeah, absolutely. And so how did, so what did that story look like? So you get to Manhattan GMAT, right? It's not the, let's say, you know, paper bound story of, you're the WizKid CEO, et cetera. But, you know, you come in, you get referred, um, and then you do turn into an executive at the company, um, ultimately being the CEO. And, and ultimately, it is a success story. It gets acquired by the Washington Post. So what was that like, um, you know, getting entering, you know, as a, as a referral and then ultimately leading a company through an exit as a CEO? Yeah, that, that, was, that was the time of my life, man. Um, it, it was so much fun. Um, so I started teaching for Manhattan GMAT um, after my company went bust, and I 
I did it as a part-time job, um, in part because I was so uh, shaken by my startup dying. Is I was like, well, I should always have a side hustle to make sure I can, you know, make enough money to uh, still be cool. Mm. So, so I, I taught the team at part-time from 2001 to 2005 um, while I was working at a healthcare software company that ended up plateauing and not working out. Um, so around 2005, the CEO approached me and said, hey, how would you like to join full-time and then um, possibly become the CEO after I leave? Uh, and his name is Zeke Vanderhoek. He was a Yale grad, and he wanted to go start a charter school for underprivileged kids, <laughs> uh, you know, the most wholesome thing in the world. <laughs> so I became the CEO in 2006, uh, and when I joined, we were a five-person company. I was getting paid $60,000. It wasn't like some crazy executive package or anything. Um, but if things worked out, I would end up with uh, equity and upside in the company. And so th in 2006, it was still very much a big bet. Uh, it was a six-person company, a boutique company that had, I, I believe it was in three or four locations at that point. Uh, and so I spent the next five years uh, growing that business. And I have to say, a small private company is such fun because there's no one breathing down your neck in terms of uh, investment decisions or, or, or allocations or giving people raises or deciding to take everyone to Killington for a ski weekend or like, you know, like I, I did whatever I thought was right for um, five years and uh, we grew to become number one in the U.S. Uh, and then the CEO of Kaplan called me up and said, hey, let's have lunch. Um, and uh, the Kaplan was part of the Washington Post at that time. And so, yeah, the, the, I met my fiance, uh, then, you know, now my wife uh, during those years too. So anyone who's listening to this, if you have a chance to join a small private company that no one's ever heard of, um, but you might have a leadership role, uh, it's going to feel small and anonymous uh, and unsexy and unglamorous. But at least in my case, it ended up being the best opportunity in my life. And so talk, talk a bit more about, um, you know, so you, you exit your role and, and, you know, what led you to found Venture for America? You know, what was the gap you saw in the entrepreneurial ecosystem? And I, I think, you know, for those um, that are listening that haven't heard of VFA that are probably going to Google it afterwards, VFA is a really compelling and unique value prop, right? By serving as an alternative to the defined pathways that students coming out of elite universities face and, and increasingly, honestly, are less inclined to pursue. Um, and all the while building a skill set of being a true operator in a business. So I, I think VFA is actually playing a very important role in talent generation for the ecosystem. And very importantly, so it's doing so in underserved cities where resources to build these talent bases and pools are, are challenging. So talk a bit more about what led you to found VFA and, and what the mission statement is. Largest GMAT prep company. Um, I personally taught the analyst classes at McKinsey, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, and I saw so many super smart, ambitious, energetic young people who weren't enjoying their jobs and weren't sure why they were there. They just gotten really good grades and, and been competitive and then wound up in these roles. So they're taking the GMAT to go to business school to figure it out. Uh, and it reminded me of Mia Davis Polk. And so I was like, wow, this is not what our smartest people should be doing, uh, especially if they're not enjoying it. So so what did I think that they ought to be doing? What would be the ideal? Because you can't just be negative. You can't be like, hey, this stinks. Do something else. So I thought to myself, well, what, what, what could people be doing? Uh, and so what occurred to me was that they should be starting businesses because you know, at this point I'd been in startups for eight or ten years and thought it was you know the, the best part of my career. And so I thought, well, startups be one thing, but 
startups in New Orleans or Detroit or Baltimore, in part because I saw so many people who'd moved to Wall Street from Michigan or other places. Like there was this massive brain drain uh, out of communities. And while I was the CEO of Manhattan GMAT, I met dozens of people from Teach for America who had gone down a different road because of their experience. And so I thought, wouldn't it be phenomenal if there was a Teach for America for startups and entrepreneurship? And I became possessed by that idea. I said, that would help everyone. It would help the young people who want to develop into operators and owners. It would help these communities uh, grow and, and prosper and create new jobs. It would help startups in these cities access talent. So I, I thought, well, let's just give young people a choice and then let them make choices. Because one of my frustrations is that we say to uh, smart young people, the world is your oyster. But here, we actually want you to choose one of these six things <laughs> in, 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 in six places. It's like, you can become a banker, consultant, lawyer, doctor, academic, or a tech person in New York. You know, so it's like, yep. like what is this about? You know, and, and so we have like this massive hyper-allocation of talent um, to certain things in certain places and an under-allocation to areas of need uh, and a path that, in my mind, makes people into better versions of themselves. I'm a totally different character for the fact that I ran Manhattan GMAT for six years. And in my case now, I started this nonprofit. So in 2011, I say, okay, what do you call Teach for America for Entrepreneurship? Venture for America. Um, that seems so patriotic. Like, who could not be for Venture for America? So I, I donated 120000 of my own to seed the organization. And then I went around guilt tripping friends saying, like, don't you love America? <laughs> and, uh, you know, got, got the commitments of like another hundred or so. So we launched in 2011 with a budget of 220000 And I, I wasn't getting paid during this time either. So I was just like, well, let's just build it and uh, make as much progress as we can. And fast forward to today, our budget's over $6 million a year. We have about 1,500 applicants um, from uh, Harvard and Duke and Yale and Brown and all these other schools uh, around the country for about 180 spots. We've trained. Um, 500, uh, we call them fellows, so 500 fellows in 17 cities. And the, 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 the things that we're really proud of and excited about that 20% of our alums have actually started a business and 80% of those companies are in a VFA city. So uh, the, the goal is to create 100,000 new U.S. jobs by 2025, and we do this by helping more of our talented young people become managers and leaders at companies and also helping startups in cities that are not on the coasts um, access the talent they need to grow. So where do you see, you know, where do you see on this trend, where do you see the state of entrepreneurship going over the next, you know, 10 to 15 years? And I, I think there's a couple pieces, um, you know, to this. You know, we face a relatively interesting conundrum in society today. You know, though entrepreneurship and startups feel incredibly popular, the data actually shows that less people are starting businesses today. You know, at the same time, you've actually seen an uptick of people going to graduate school. Law school numbers are getting back up after the deep rungs during the recession. And the interesting implication there is basic supply and demand and, and what this means for the macro economy. So you can get 100000 in student debt and enter into a professional world in which many folks will be jobless given the oversupply of entrance. And then on the other side, as a young person, it's actually very challenging to get a $100,000 loan for your business. And there's going to be a, a large shortage of entrepreneurs in the future. So I think that's the first piece um, and the existing dynamics for, you know, young workers in society. But there are several other dynamics. And, and the other really big and obvious one that's going on in the background is the advancement in technology. You know, on the, on the revenue side, markets are much larger today than ever before. You had 50 million people on the Internet in 95, and 
you're going to have $3 billion on mobile in 2020. On the cost side, significant portions of the technical and infrastructure complexity is just being subsidized away. You know, No longer are the days that companies raise $15 million to rack servers. Now you can be two guys or two women in a, in a room and have your laptops and have Amazon Web Services. You know, scaling is more expensive and the ecosystem is noisier, but if you succeed and have a strong value prop, you can, you can really take off. And we're just getting started with these advancements, right? Advancements in AI, Internet of Things, VR, AR. You know, the applications and possibilities are seemingly boundless, though, you know, there are, of course, real repercussions with respect to what might happen for displacement in the job markets and, and a whole bunch of other things that society will need to think through. So I know that's throwing a lot over over to the wall and kind of seeing what sticks. But what do you see for entrepreneurship in the next decade or so? You know, I'm glad you sized up the, the difference between the hype and the reality where uh, the U.S. economy is forming something like 100,000 fewer new businesses per year than it was um, about 12 years ago. And the numbers are particularly bad for 20 to 34-year-olds. The proportion of those households that have any shares uh, of a private company has gone down more than 50% over the last 15 years or so. So fewer people are starting businesses uh, in the U.S. than ever, and it's particularly pronounced among young people. And I have to say that uh, that bears out my uh, experiences working with hundreds of young people and that even the enterprising among them feel somewhat daunted by uh, both their landscape of choices uh, and also in some cases that that they're getting really big paychecks and and shiny opportunities thrown at them by, um, by big companies and their friends are taking those opportunities and it seems almost irrational not to join them, you know? It's like yep. the... the, the the marginal difference now is, is higher and higher. I mean, I'll give you an example. There's a fellow E-Tech Huang, um, a computer science major from Duke who joined BSA and he's now he's working at this um, startup in, in Baltimore called Leverage, but all of his friends are going to like Facebook and Google getting like paid six figures and, you know, and he was like, whoa, <laughs> like, uh, you know, am I doing the right thing by, by heading to Baltimore? We're like, yes, you are. And E-Tech's having a great time. So, you know, I, I like, one, so one of the things that we try and uh, let people know at VFA is that look, careers aren't built in two years, and that if, if you um, head down a particular road, um, that will develop you yourself personally and develop certain qualities. That's the most important thing you can do. Uh, you know, you shouldn't be trying to maximize your bank account over like a 24 month period all the time, <laughs> <laughs> or, or else uh, you know you'll have a pretty narrow band of opportunities at any moment. Um, so. So the, the truth is that entrepreneurship is getting harder and harder. People talk about technology as an entrepreneurship enabler, but the truth is it stifles most um, most businesses at this point. Because back in the day, if you look at someone like Kevin Plank who started Under Armour, his first business was like a flower selling business in college. And today that would be a pretty poor business because, you know, you can buy flowers online. Yep. <laughs> like there, there are a lot of low-hanging fruit business opportunities that no longer exist. And so entrepreneurs feel pressure to uh, start a more tech-intensive or um, more groundbreaking company. You just can't start like a, a local business and then evolve from there. It's interesting what you know what technology has done in many senses on, on that point exactly. You see a lot of these businesses consolidated now, right? You see a lot of the small local mom and pops that, that go away. And one of the interesting things that you guys have actually done, you've recently announced this as a partnership with UBS in which 
you're providing seed capital for certain companies started by VFA alums. And I think the reciprocal effect of, of an effort like this is um, can have magnanimous effects on, on those underserved cities. You're deploying talent to those underserved cities. You're building up an entrepreneurial ecosystem. And then there's capital, which is the fuel for the innovation engine that actually goes into those cities to, to start new businesses and propel existing businesses. It's also a timely announcement on the other side, given you know how many interesting things are going on in the capital markets and, and the venture venture climate generally. You know, seed stage investing especially is getting a lot more institutional and crowded. So, what are you know what what was the genesis? I'm interested to hear kind of the genesis and the thought process between behind the partnership with UBS, and then more broadly, um, you know, how do you think these changes? You know, at the seed level, we're seeing changes. We're seeing changes at the traditional A level and late stage growth equity. How do, you, how do you think those changes are um, that are going on in the fundraising environment bode, you know, for founders in 2017, and and more interestingly, really, you know, people that are trying to start and found businesses in in the underserved cities that VFA uh, interacts with. You know, the, the funding environment in most of our cities is uh, is still a little bit more old school, where angels typically are the first funders. Uh, and I'm happy to say the angels in Baltimore and Cleveland uh, and New Orleans are fairly accessible. Like, if you're starting a company in those environments, you're going to probably meet the angel community organically and, like, the you know, as soon as you decide you want to, really. And that's been one of the things I've really enjoyed about getting to know these markets uh, with Venture for America. It's like I've just met a lot of really awesome, amazing entrepreneurs and investors uh, in these cities. You can imagine the angel investor of Baltimore. It's like a senior executive who uh, now just wants to do great stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so if you start a business, like one of our alums, James Fail, started a, a business called Zest Tea. It's like high caffeine tea okay. in, in Baltimore. And, uh, you know, one of our local board members there is now an angel investor in his company. So a lot of the stuff, I'm happy to say, at the ground level is still organic and accessible. But we started this Venture Catalyst Awards and then the seed fund that we're building um, with UBS, among others, because more and more of our alums are starting businesses. And to one of your earlier points, there are all of these institutional incentives getting people to um, head to law school, head to grad school. The government will just give you tens of thousands of dollars, no questions asked. Um, And so we wanted to, to make it so that there was a more realistic pathway to starting a business and then getting access to the money you need, especially now that we now have dozens of Venture for America alums who are starting companies. So, so that, that's, that was the, the genesis of the Venture Catalyst Awards and then now the Seed Fund. And so what do you, you know, as a last question on, on this topic, before we move to some, you know, kind of career retrospectives and, and just broader kind of philosophical perspective questions, what do you, you know, what do you think we see for venture tech and, and startups and small businesses in, in 2017? You know, and I think on the optimistic side, there's, there's a lot of things. I think, um, you know, we see a lot of, we'll see a lot of activity in the financing side. Um, and other than the financing side, I think, you know, interestingly enough, you're going to see things on the technology side also, although it might be a, a stifler as opposed to enabler, uh, like we talked about. On the pessimistic side, you know, I, I see a lot of uncertainty given the turbulence in Washington and as you know very well, uncertainty is the biggest enemy in business, right? For fragile organizations like small businesses and startups, that typically means more risk aversion. You know, startups are less aggressive and they're forced to be less ambitious to essentially ensure survival. So, you know, certainly a lot of trends, um, both positive and negative, could come from 2017. 
know, how do you see it play out and, and how do you advise, you know, some of, how do you advise young graduates coming out to think about it? And how do you advise some of the smaller businesses and startups that you guys work with? Well, you know, the, the election has actually caused uh, a new consciousness among the tech, the techies I know in Silicon Valley uh, and in New York that the, the problems are, uh, are more immediate than they, they, they heretofore realized. And so I see a lot, like I had lunch with a venture capitalist the other day who literally asked me, it was like, look, I want to do something that helps people upskill to become employable um, from lower levels. So if you have anything like that, like I want to invest in that, like that, like, and, and he's doing it where he asked me because he really wants to try and solve some problems. Uh, and that, that is a silver lining to, to this political era is that uh, people now, uh, have woken up to the fact that what happens uh, nationwide actually will uh, affect us all, uh, even those of us in the bubbles of, of New York or San Francisco. Uh, the, you know, the, among the tech trends, I mean, you, you had a pretty good list um, yourself. It's, uh, it, it's incredible how fast some things are accelerating. I mean, the, the timeline on self-driving cars, uh, for example, has just kept get, getting moved up, <laughs> moved up and up. To the point where now they're saying uh, 2020, which is what like three years away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, so, so the, the so I think the pace on that side is, is still going to be very rapid, uh, and the uncertainty emanating from Washington um, actually I think is going to be a spur to some good things where a lot of techies are trying to to um, find ways to contribute. I'll give you one example. Uh, we just launched a new executive in residence program with Venture for America, where we're recruiting executives from Slack, LinkedIn, PayPal, Yelp, and other tech companies to move to a VFA city for a year and help local startups and entrepreneurs. Uh, and that got announced two weeks ago in USA Today. Um, so that's the kind of thing that really was a direct result of, uh, of the election. That's, that's really cool, actually. And I think it's, it's, a, it's an interesting kind of subtle and nuanced point that you're hitting on, which is the superficial um, piece surrounding uncertainty is, you know, look, it's it's a risk, right? It's an uncalculated risk. It's hard to navigate an environment in which there's uncertain risk. But I think the subtle point there is that disruption and volatility, in many senses, is the lifeblood of tech and startups, right? A lot of opportunities are founded, or a lot of change ensues in environments that are volatile. Um, and so, you know, whatever your political affiliations are, you know, what's come out of Washington this election cycle is certainly something different, to say the least. And so I think there is actually a lot of opportunity to strike um, positive change. Yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm strangely optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'd like to take that note, Andrew, and actually transition into a couple career-oriented questions and, and get your perspective on, on leading an impactful career. Um, and more importantly and interestingly, in, in something that you really genuinely enjoy. So as a first question, you know, you've gotten to know a lot of great people in a lot of different types of industries over your career. You know, many of the board members of Venture for America are just incredibly impressive folks. You know, folks like David Gilboa of Warby Parker, David Tish of Techstars, Josh Koppelman of First Round, you know, many other folks. You know, I, I think mentorship and, you know, your early personal advisory network is is really something that's key to develop as, as a young professional. So, you know, who over the course of your career has been the most influential person you've interacted with? And what are the set of characteristics about them that really impressed you and you've tried to emulate in your own journey? So uh, there's, a, there's a, a saying that uh, 
And so I found that to be true where, where everyone I've worked for, uh, I took a lot from, um, and their perspective stuck with me. So I was fortunate in that I worked for and with a series of really talented entrepreneurs throughout my 20s. And even when the company didn't work out, like, uh, you know, I, I saw what they were trying to do and took a major tool or two from. Um, I learned so much from Zeke Vanderhoek, the founder of Manhattan GMAT. It's unreal. That guy just had such a great value set um, and focus on the educational experience, the teacher, the student. Uh, he ignored all of the, no offense to anyone, but like the MBA type stuff. <laughs> <laughs> are on point that everything else will take care of itself. And so I had such a great foundation because I showed up to this company that was still very small. And then I started doing what I thought were like uh, intelligent corporate type things. <laughs> like, you know, like, uh, like spending uh, money on marketing in certain respects and like uh, emphasizing personnel and like on the, the executive team and things like that. Um, but like I saw from, from Zeke, that having strong values in business is actually a competitive advantage. And that's been true for a lot of the folks I've been lucky enough to meet with Venture for America, where so many of them have really just outstanding characters. Uh, and, and that's something that, you know, some of the adversity you've experienced for me or that I experienced early on in my career, there's something to adversity building character. There, there are very few other ways to get it, <laughs> really. Uh, and. And the character does correlate, correlate to having a great career. I mean, I've seen that. Um, in my case, too, the fact that there are some amazing leaders and people associated with Venture for America um, is less a result of any pre-existing relationships I had and more the fact that they saw what we were trying to do with Venture for America and uh, and bought in. So, so the advice I would give here is less try and become friends with awesome people, which generally does not work that well, truthfully. Yep. <laughs> um, it's more, um, if you can invest yourself or dedicate yourself to something that other people will believe is worth supporting, and it can be a for-profit, obviously, like a for-profit business, or a non-profit as Venture for America is, or something else, um, then really compelling relationships uh, and real relationships will develop from that. Um, it's very hard to manage your network successfully if you don't have items of substance that you are fighting uh, alongside other people for. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense, and I actually think a lot of the a lot of the advice given in universities or graduate schools around you know networking, and I put that in air quotes, is is misguided, right? I think a lot of the best networks actually form out of genuine and personal relationships in which. Um, you can bond with people or you can add value around, you know, a common cause or a common interest. You know, that's, that's how depth of relationship gets formed. Um, and that's actually probably the number one, you know, root cause of a lot of inorganic opportunities that can come up, you know, in your career. I think the interesting nuance point, something I've tried to rack my head around a lot too, is the, you know, a question that I often have, and I, I think this is a point that gets debated in universities, which, you know, I'm not actually convinced what, what the right side of the argument is, but there is something to the effect of, you know, let's, let's take law school, for example, right? You, you went to law school, um, and I'm sure you probably had altruistic reasons for going. I, I did myself. And then 
you get funneled into this engine exactly what you were talking about earlier where you know all your friends are taking you know that corporate law job or so and you're kind of staring in your uh, yourself in the face and saying wait a minute am i irrational for for not taking that job and i think that experience is similar whether you're doing investment banking consulting the large technology companies these days whatever have you and there's an interesting piece to that which is you know one of the one of the truisms of going down those paths is you are surrounded by you know, successful, smart people. Um, and so you do start to form form a network. And regardless of if that's your long-term, you know, career trajectory or career path, you start to meet folks that probably by, you know, by their networks know folks and, and know other folks. And you can start to, you know, align yourself with something that you're interested in building and then pair it with people that are influential or people that can connect you to the right people. Um, to really accelerate or take off what it is you're interested in. So how do you think about that tension of saying, you know what, maybe I do go down a traditional pathway because it can provide me with the network or it can provide me the surrounding pieces of the infrastructure um, that, you know, if I have a passion or I have an interest, I can accelerate as opposed to the thought process of let me just get out there and do and not get caught up so much in trying to build the surrounding pieces of the house, but really just focus on the foundation of the house. How do you think about that? Well, it's one reason why we built Venture of America the way we have, because if you can move to that startup in Baltimore or uh, New Orleans, and you're there with 14 others of like the best and brightest young people your your age uh, in the country, and then you get there, and there are another 30 Venture for America people already there, and then there'll be another, you know, so yep. it's, it's a little bit like trying to scaffold with community and network things that right now uh, are constrained to places like Harvard, yeah. <laughs> or whatever. Um, and so, so I, I always knew, because I, you know, I went, like, uh, I went to Exeter Brown in Columbia, like, you know, it's like, uh, the network effects are very strong. Yep. Um, and and you feel um, like you can't really go that far wrong because even if the stuff doesn't work out, like you know, other people will do interesting things. Um, I, I will say though that so many of the truly successful and impactful folks that I've met at Venture of America don't really come from that tribe. Um, and, and they, they went off on their own and like, I call it the cave <laughs> when they like went into the cave and then they toiled on something generally in obscurity for like a, a while and then emerge. And then all of a sudden everyone's like, Oh my God, like that's amazing. And then everyone like runs after it and joins it. And then they end up hiring all the, um, kids out of Harvard and Columbia and Brown. <laughs> to be honest, I mean, you know, if you think about it, like, Folks like Jack Dorsey or whatever, like Jack Dorsey is what, like, and when you drop out, who's like a design guy, you know what I mean? Yep. They're like Airbnb guys, like RISD, and like, it's like, so there, there, there is that pattern that I've seen. Um, and so one of the, the themes of Venture for America is that um, you're not going to be on the planet precisely, uh, and if you do try too hard on that, you'll probably miss uh, an important opportunity or relationship um and then a lot of it is around trying to find um compelling people to work with and then pushing in a general direction and trusting that um you'll make progress even if it doesn't look precisely like what you thought it was going to look like yeah i think the planning point is is an important one to reflect on you know one of my advisors had told me once upon a time that you know go into something that with open eyes you can see yourself doing for the next 18 months and give it your hardest there 
and don't focus on optimizing the next path. And then recalibrate right when you're 12 months in, because if you're constantly um, trying to optimize for that next permutation or combination or whatever it might be of opportunity, you're actually you're not going to get the best out of that experience itself. Um, and that's something that's stuck with me because I think, especially now, as you see with a lot of folks coming out of college, there's the two-year analyst program, and then you go into two years of something else, and then you go to two years for business school. You're producing these kind of factory-like, you know, every two years you jump to the next thing. Um, and the and the experiences are focused on optimizing for the next as opposed to getting the most out of the current. It's something that Elon Musk said uh, stuck, that stuck with me. He was like, sometimes if the... Um, if the upside is high enough, you should do something that has a very low probability of working. Yep. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, and, and that's something that's okay, too. It's like, it's okay to lose sometimes <laughs> as long as you went and said, like, well, you know, uh, I gave myself a chance to do something I would have been really excited about or proud of. Right. Um, or, or take the yeah. contrarian approach and say that, you know, it's counterintuitive to enter into some of these elite professional service fields where, you know, the best and brightest are so rigorously competing because... Um, with that much competition, you're competing away a lot of the upside or a lot of the return that you could actually get, right? So some of the counterintuitive yeah, yeah. pieces. You don't necessarily want to operate in the most efficient market at all times. Exactly. Um, you know, one, because you might not always win. And, uh, you know, and, and, and two, that, like, in my experience, like, that trend, that marketplace will, um, so, you know, so one, one thing I joke about with Davis Polk, um, sorry for any lawyers are listening to this, but um, I call it, like, intellectual manual labor. <laughs> and, 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 and that's what happens when you're, like, in a hyper-efficient market. It's like, let, let's just plug you in and then, uh, you know, bill you by the hour. Yep. Uh, and that's, like, highly, highly efficient um, in its own way. Um, so I've now done a, a number of uh, businesses, and there are times when, like, I really feel like, wow, this is really inefficient. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, but you have to be able to like metabolize those bouts of inefficiency because in real life, progress is not linear. Like, you know, you can, uh, grind away at something, make no progress for like three months and then, uh, something big happens and then you like take this great leap forward. I mean, that, that's the way it happens, yep. um, out in the world. Uh, and, and to, to give yourself a chance to take that leap forward means sometimes accepting a less efficient uh, environment and context. And I think that's really important because a couple of things, right? Like one, as we were talking about earlier in the conversation is as the hype builds out around startups or entrepreneurship, it, it, it gets harder and harder to hear those stories of, of failure or to hear those stories of true adversity. Um, and then I think the other piece too, is that, you know, it's, it is easy to look at people's resumes or people's pathways and, you know, assume that, you know, it was, it was always easy or, you know, if you have that kind of certain pathway, you'll get there. I think a lot of the time, you know, people, people don't see the zeros or, you know, what's kind of, it's, it's the iceberg analogy, right? You don't see what's below the ocean, the, the failure, the sleepless nights, the adversity, the, the work, the luck, any of that stuff, but you see kind of the top point, which looks like a nice shiny little sculpture. So it's, it's interesting to your point where, um, you know, a lot of those things are, are unseen. And so, you know, on, on that piece, I'd say, you know, as a, as a final question, if, if you had to distill, you know, the most important lessons from your, you know, admittedly young, but, but successful and, and impactful career into a few observations, you know, what would those observations be? Is it a mindset that you'd advocate young people internalize? Is it more of a tactical focus you'd encourage? 
you know, if you had to give the elevator pitch, um, you know, what's, what's the most critical thing you would focus on in the early days of your career if you had to do it all over again? Well, I, I, I uh, read an article when I was 25 or so about a guy named Ted Neonsis, who you might have heard of. Um, and uh, Ted wrote down a list of his life's goals um, when he was about that age. And they were absurd. They were like, own an NBA team, like ridiculous things. Um, and then uh, it turns out he achieved like most all of them, including owning an NBA team. He owns the, the Washington Wizards. <laughs> and uh, and so I, I saw this and I was like, oh my god! Like, let me write down what the heck I want. And it's such a clarifying exercise. Uh, so I wrote down this list of life goals. Some of them were quite mundane, like own a dog and skydive and things <laughs> like that. Um, and then others were very lofty. They were things like uh, like. Be the CEO of a company with, a, with more than 100 employees. Uh, change thousands of people's lives for the better. Like, like some things where you have no idea how you're ever going to do them. And, uh, and I, I'm, so what happens is that like, when you're faced with various decisions, you look at them and you say, well, like, that one actually relates to something I, I said that I value, so I'm just going to go do that. Um, which in, in this case, like I started Venture for America uh, for a number of reasons, but one was that that I, I knew I wanted to, to do something that would impact people's lives in a positive way, and I knew that because I wrote it down uh, a, a long time ago. So like the advice I'd give people is to write down what they want, um, and then the, you'll make decisions that push you in that direction, and just go, go back to it every once in a while um, just to, to check, check in with yourself. And I, I love having people do this when they're still somewhat young and idealistic, um, because they, they'll generally end up writing down a thing or two that will require them to make like a, a bit of a leap at some point. Very cool. Well, Andrew, this has been you know an incredibly insightful conversation built with a lot of uh, interesting nuggets that, that are surely going to be helpful for folks listening. So, so let, me, let me just uh, make a, a couple quick plugs, uh, particularly yeah. for those uh, p- listeners who might um, be lawyers looking to transition out. Absolutely. Um, I wrote a book called Smart People Should Build Things, and uh, it, it's it's a book that people give to each other to, to leave law jobs. <laughs> um, but uh, HarperCollins published it a couple of years ago, um, and uh, and it, it has some of the personal detail around uh, my own journey. The other thing is that a major documentary was shot with an Oscar-winning filmmaker called Generation Startup that followed six of our entrepreneurs in Detroit for a year and a half as they went about building businesses. That documentary, uh, you can see the trailer online right now, but that that documentary will be available in full on Netflix uh, and iTunes um, a little bit later this year. So you can go ahead and put it in your your queue for later. Um, uh, But the name of the movie, again, is Generation Startup. The director won an Oscar in 2007 um, for a movie called Prehealth, and she also won a Clio for the Dove Real Women campaign. But it's a beautiful film about entrepreneurship, and anyone that's interested in this sort of thing, I, I think will really enjoy it. No, I, I encourage, um, you know, I, as I was mentioning to you before we got on the call, I really enjoyed following your story. I know it's a story that has a long left to be to be written, and I'm really excited to see kind of the this goal of 100,000 jobs in the next decade and how VFA progresses towards it, um, and really encourage a lot of folks, you know, that are listening um, to find that inner passion. That seems like the, you know, kind of key tactical piece to take away from this, which is, you know, be... Don't be risk averse. Don't be afraid of failure, and and go out and do it. Yeah, it, it really. You guys are the best it, it gets, and uh, you know you can do whatever you want under the sun. And anytime you 
have some kind of voice in your head that uh, that says anything to the contrary, uh, just totally quash it and know that uh, it's, it's nonsense. You guys can do whatever you want. Awesome, Andrew. Well, again, thanks. You know, thanks for taking the time today. I really enjoyed our conversation. I know a lot of folks that are going to listen to this or these are the same issues people grapple with um, all the time. So I really appreciate it. I know it's a long weekend. So, you know, thanks again so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great talking to you.